Well, let's get on over to the book of Zephaniah. Probably haven't heard from Zephaniah for a little while. It's one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We're doing a series of messages in our church. If you're just joining us, I've preached through, I think, six or seven. I think there's seven or eight. I can't actually remember. Seven or eight books that I have never preached from on a Sunday morning. There's two to go, Zephaniah and Amos. And we're just going to do a couple of weeks in Zephaniah. We're doing kind of an overview of Zephaniah, and then we're going to do an overview of Amos. And Zephaniah really is um, a book about, it's a warning book. It, it warns God's people and the world as a whole of God's distaste towards sin and the judgment that he will dole out if we don't clean up our acts. So chapter one is primarily geared toward Judah. So the nation of Israel at this point in history had split in two. We have 10 tribes to the north. We have two in the south that collectively went by the name Judah. Chapter one is directed toward Judah. Chapter two is directed toward the nations around them, the Ammonites, the Moabites, um, Egypt, Cush. And then chapter three is directed toward the holy city of Jerusalem and the nations as a whole. And God is basically saying like, I can't stand sin. I will deal with sin. Don't think you're going to get away with it. So it's a warning text. Now, why is this relevant? Before we go further, let me just kind of get us going by talking about something we often talk about this time of the year, and it's New Year's resolutions. So what are your New Year's resolutions? Maybe you have some, maybe you don't. Maybe you're thinking about putting some together. Mine might be like, I need to drop seven pounds of body fat that I put on over the holidays. So that would be a good one. And some of you might be like, yeah, you, you do need to lose a little bit. This was the second shirt I tried on this morning, by the way. So I probably need to lose a few pounds. Some of you need to lose a few pounds. I won't say who, but you know uh, that you need to lose a few pounds as well. Uh, you may be looking for another career. Uh, one of your resolutions might be to get married. I don't know. You have New Year's resolutions. Here's five that would be like super great for you to consider. How about reading through the Bible this year? That would be a good one. How about uh, upping your prayer life? That would be a good one. How about serving in the church? It's great to have people attend, but service is really where we start to get off the ground and get things done. How about committing yourself to a life of generosity? Like just pouring out your time, your talents, your treasures to bless other people and honor God. These would be good things for us to resolve to do. And they may be things you've already resolved to do, but here's what you need to know. Whenever you make a resolution to God, you're like, Lord, I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to clean up my vocabulary. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to start doing that. You won't fail all of the time, but you will fail some of the time. That's, that's life. We're not yet fully sanctified. This ain't heaven. We're still on our way toward it. None of us are fully like Jesus yet. So there's going to be victories and hopefully lots of victories. We're going to make resolutions and we're going to be successful. But you know as well as I do that there's also going to be failures. So here's what I want to talk to you about today. Because I think the text is really calling us to consider this question. I've sinned, Lord. Now what? When you sin, when you fail to do what you know is right, be it a resolution that you've made or just a, following a simple commandment from God's word. When you sin, now what? What do I do when I've broken my resolve? Here's what some people do. They ignore it. It's not going to think about it. 
Not going to think about it. Don't want to hear it. Going to skip that sermon. Don't want to read that passage. They just ignore it. The net result continued to decline. Or others just fall into complacency. I just don't care. I know I'm sinning. I know I'm a drunk. I know I'm an addict. I know I view porn. I know I got a foul mouth. I know my marriage stinks. I know I have a bitter spirit. I know I'm a liar. I know I'm not generous. And I just don't care. If that's your attitude, you have cause to question the authenticity of your faith. Because if the spirit of God is in you, there's going to be conviction of sin and some basic desire to overcome. So that's a a danger signal right there. Others might fall into a pity party. Oh, it's just my, you know, if you only knew my parents, if you only knew my, my lack of resources, if you only knew what I went through. And hey, granted, life sometimes passes us a bowl of sour cherries. We get it. Like life is difficult. Who among us hasn't suffered in some way, shape, or form? But pity takes us nowhere. It's just, it's the dead end street sign at the end of the dead end street. Just, it doesn't take us anywhere. So you just kind of stay there, no resolve, no forward movement. It's just not a good place to stay. Or we can accuse others. You know, it's my church's fault. Or it's my spouse's fault. Or it's my boss's fault. So we can do all of that stuff. But that's, that's not helpful. That doesn't lead us anywhere Good. Here's what we should do. When we sin, very simply, we should regret it and repent of it. And that's what leads us to a place of restoration, which is where we all want to be. Not restored once and for all, sinless, but I want my life to be constantly being restored. It's like you you go to a house, you want to buy a house, you look at the house, you're like, this house is a disaster. No one's done anything on it for 30 years. They haven't changed the roof, they haven't upgraded, the carpet's still the same, the, the bathroom's still the same. Wow, like where do I even start? If you're a house owner, you know this. You always have to be more or less in a state of renovating. Things are always breaking down. They're always getting old. Something needs to be repainted. Something needs to be replaced. And if you just keep up on the restoring process every year, every few years, everything's going to be fine. That's really what the Christian life is about. We're always under restoration. That means, oh, I'm aware of sin in my life. I need to regret it. I need to repent of it. And then I can move forward and find continuing restoration with the Lord. That really is the pattern that God has endorsed for millennia. So in Zephaniah, let me just tell you a little bit about Zephaniah. Zephaniah was one of the great, great, great or so, I think three or four generations down, grandsons of Hezekiah, one of the kings of Judah. He was from a second or third son. Hezekiah's firstborn son from his line came King Josiah. So Zephaniah is prophesying during the reign of King Josiah, who's like his third or fourth cousin or something like that. Two godly men, King Josiah, spoken of in 2 Kings. You can read about his story there, his account. He's a young king. He's put on the throne at the age of eight. So obviously he has advisors around him. As he grows into maturity, still as a young man, really a teenager, one of, the, um, one of his, his uh, priests is out in the temple. So obviously in the nation of Israel, there's people that love the Lord still like Zephaniah. But in the temple, 
Hilkiah is like doing some house cleaning. I don't know, maybe they're preparing for a big garage sale or something. Let's clean out the temple. And he discovers a book. He's like, come on, I've never seen this before. And he opens it up, and it's the word of God. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's the Torah law, the basic foundational books in our Bible. He's like, what is this? And he takes it to the king. What had happened was they were playing religion. This is just so weird. They were playing religion, but at some point had lost God's word. Now th- think about that. This is, it's weird, but it's actually not uncommon. So you can go to churches all over our world today. And there's chairs set up or pews set up and there's buildings and lights and worship bands or grand pianos or whatever. And people are opening their mouths and saying things on the platform or the stage or from the pulpit. And there's a liturgy and there's offering plates going around. But surprise, surprise, God's word is not taught. And guess what? That's considered normal. And maybe it's been that way for generations. So this is the spiritual apathy that King Josiah is thrust into prior to his reforms a couple decades earlier Zephaniah is delivering these words which thank God were acted upon because there was reform in Judah so there's hope here and he he delivers these messages to the people of Israel and here here's kind of what what we learn from Zephaniah's prophecy God notices our sin and never lets us get away with it. So this is the thing about sin. We often continue in it because we get away with it, or we think we're going to get away with it, or we think that God doesn't notice, or here's a big error. Let me stress this. We think that time heals everything. Really? No, time heals nothing if nothing is done with that time. So there's people running around. Maybe they committed a, I don't know, they, they committed adultery and left their spouse back in whatever, 1978. And they think, well, I've never really repented of it, but that was like almost 40 years ago. So surely God's forgotten. No, it's just, you could have might as well have just done it yesterday. Have you repented of that? Or you stole something from someone 20 years ago, and you're like, well, that's 20 years ago. Did you ever repent of it? Or you ripped someone off earlier last year in business. Or you, you committed some sin and you've, you've done nothing about it, but you're just not doing it anymore. And you think, well, God, no, God never forgets. Every sin that's ever been committed in human history, no matter how microscopic in our mind, will one day be atoned for. It will either be atoned for by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or it will be paid for by you eternally in the lake of fire. But God will not allow what we would, the white lie, there's no white lies, they're all black. God will not allow any sin to go unpunished. Jesus will either atone for it or you will atone for it. So look at chapter one. And what we see here in Zephaniah is God's outlook on sin. So if your view of God is like um, red cardigan, Blue shoes, Mr. Rogers, super nice, prepared to have your cage rattled. Because here is the God of the Bible speaking truth into the lives of the covenant community who have sinned against him. Check it out. Verse 2. 
We're just going to skim through this verse two. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Verse three, I will sweep away man and beast. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Verse four, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. How big do you think God's hand is? Big enough to crush us. Verse six, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. That was a fake pagan god that for some reason Israel was super attracted to and kept falling into worshiping. And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, that's verse six. Verse nine, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So that, that leaping over the threshold thing, we're not, we're not totally sure what that is a reference to, but you basically have two options and both of them are bad. One would be uh, inappropriate conduct in temple worship. The second would be, might be that they were taking some now unknown performance or act or ritual from Baal worship, and they were trying to syncretize it with worship of the biblical God. So something, something about inappropriate worship is being spoken out against there, as well as sins against others, violence and fraud. Then in verse 13, it says, they will build houses, they will not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This would have leapt off, off the page to an old covenant believer, because you know what? When they thought of God's blessings, they, would, they could hear in their ears numerous statements from God throughout history where God would say, you know, I'm going to bless you if you serve me. I'm going to bless you with new wine that comes from vineyards, oil, harvest, fertility, military security, long life. Under the old covenant, prosperity was largely measured by physical promises. Under the new covenant, more spiritual but this would have left off the page at them when God's like, I'm going to cut you off from that. You're going to build a house. You're not going to live in it. You're going to plant your vineyard. Forget about drinking any wine from it. What does this say about God? Look again at the language. Utterly sweep, sweep away, cut off, stretch out my hand against, cut off, punish. What does that say about God? God will not allow sin to go unpunished. That's what it tells us about God. Why? To protect his own glory. Do you know that God existed for eternity before you and I were ever created? Think God was lonely or something and needed some friends? <laughs> no. God is very much self-concerned. You're not allowed to be. You're not God. You're a created being. He's eternal. But God will do everything to ultimately protect his own glory. We say the mission of God is the glory of God. God brings glory to himself by making disciples. But God, God doesn't exist for you. And in the recesses of our own heart, even in our churches, we can easily, and it's subtle, it's sneaky, it's sly. We can easily... Shift away from a Godward focus to a me-word focus. To a you-word focus. What do you want me to preach? 
What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Hey, guys in my position can become employees of churches who are at the whim and will of whatever the church people want them to do to make them feel good on a Sunday. Well, fortunately, the word of God doesn't allow for that. And we're reminded that the mission of God is the glory of God. It's all about God. This is the vertical focus of the Christian life. God is so holy that he is prepared to reduce the world to ashes. Check this out in verse 18 of chapter 1. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is speaking of the pending day of the Lord. The day within which the Lord will come and cataclysmically and catastrophically and categorically destroy all of the world that he's created. There will be a remnant that will be saved from that. Thank God. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Thank God for that. But this is a, this is a titanic statement from God that he will reduce it to ashes. Yesterday, we have a bit of a wood line uh, behind our house and the previous owner had stacked a bunch of branches and stuff that have fallen off trees back there. There's big piles of them. And I, I just, they're, they're not going to rot down for like 10 years. So I dragged them all out of there and Abby and her friend and I loaded them into a couple wagons and brought them out and I burned them. And we're talking a pile that's twice the length of this mat. So we'll say maybe from here, about as wide, a couple feet high over to like here. So for a couple hours, I just chucked them on the fire and I burned them. So you got this big old pile. If you come to my house today, all you have left is just a little circle of ashes, useful for nothing. Fire is very effective. It's catastrophic at reducing something to nothing. God will reduce all things to nothing through the consuming power of his holy wrath towards sin. That's what the text is telling us. He will do everything within his power. And because his power is infinite, he'll, he will always be successful at guarding his own holiness. So when we think of God, let's not do these things. Let's not think of God as he's often communicated as just a big heart, you know, with no head and no principles. We have this idea, God is love, God is love. Do you know anything else about God? Oh, I don't know, but he's love. Usually when people say that, it's not for biblical purposes to encourage and to build up and to help us to understand the nature of the gospel. It's as an out. It's like an escape door, an exit door to give themselves an excuse to think, well, God, I'm a sinner, but God is loving. So he's going to get over it. Let's not do that. Every sin, no matter how small, will be atoned for, either by you or by the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't lie to people by telling them that God doesn't expect perfection. You know what God's standard is? 100%. Do we get there? No, but that's why we trust in Jesus. And that's why we also maintain ongoing confession with the Lord on a regular basis. We don't want the sins to pile up. God isn't great in a curve. 80% might be great at school. Get on the honor roll. You get 80%. Way to go. No, you get an 80%. On moral perfection, you have failed. God's standard is always perfection. Third, don't mislead people by preaching a passive God who like doesn't notice. We're, we, we are theists. 
We are not deists. What's the difference? The deist says God created the world and now he's gone. The theist says God created the world and he's intimately and actively involved in it. God is not passive. He hasn't vacated the scenes. His expectations are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our country and culture can reduce moral standards down to nothing, all they want. God's standards never change. So why would the standards of God's people ever change? Fourth, don't trick people by telling them that God is more interested in them than he is in himself. God will do everything to defend ultimately his own honor his own authority, and his own position, even at the expense of you. So at the end of it all, as God jealously guards his throne at all costs, we need to know this. If I stand in the way of God, there's only two things that are going to happen. I will either be redeemed or God will rid the world of me. Those are my only two options. There's no in between. I will be redeemed by surrender to the Lord receiving the perfection of Christ, seeking to live a life that brings honor and glory to him to the point that I will ultimately be glorified in heaven or God will rid the world of me on the great and cataclysmic day of the Lord. Now, what are the sins or what were the sins that brought about this prophecy in the first place? We haven't even talked about that yet. All these warnings, threats. What was it that they were doing? Well, sin is sin as we've discussed, but we could say there are anthropocentric sins and there are theocentric sins. So in anthropocentric sins, you know, the study of anthropology is the study of man is a sin that's committed against another person. I steal from you. I lie to you. I lust after you. I cheat you. I do violence against you. I defraud you or you do the same to me or someone else. Sins against one another. God doesn't like that. But then there's another category of sins. And those are the sins that we commit that are directly offensive to the character and person of God himself. These are theocentric, God-centered sins. Now, Judah, keep in mind, they are the people of God. So this is a message for God's people to consider. For those that consider themselves part of God's people. Judah had committed not one, but two of these sins, probably more, but there's kind of two mentioned here. The first is a lack of respect for God. Okay, you might lack respect for me or me for you or whatnot. Probably not great for our relationship. But to lack respect for your creator is a pretty big deal. So look at the Bible, verse 7. God's warning to them is, be silent Before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near, and it always is, by the way. We should all, every generation should live their lives as if the end is going to happen in our lifetime. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Why are we told to be silent before the Lord? It's another way, biblical language of saying, show some respect for me. Show some respect for me. A rough analogy. Cop pulls you over. Do you argue? I don't believe. That's not going to go well for you. Mom or dad pull you aside. Why did you do this? Argue. That's not going to go well for you. 
teacher hauls you to classes, stop disrupting the class, start arguing. That's not going to go well for you. Silence is a demonstration of respect. It's like, okay. It's a demonstration of respect. God's like, show some respect for me. Be silent before the Lord. Another prophet, Zechariah, said something very similar in Zechariah 2.13. He wrote, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He's coming your way. Be silent. Show some respect for God, even in worship. I preached from this sermon, probably this text, probably 20-something years ago. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. So good for worship. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. How many people's worship is actually foolish? Because they're not here to show respect for God. So let's ask ourselves some questions about our own approach to God. How about in worship? You know, fake worship is when you come, but there's no surrender. There's no surrender. You, you, you come, maybe you verbalize the words, you sit through the service, you give, you say hi, but there's no surrender. So we could come to church week after week and harbor the exact same unconfessed sin that we had last week and the week before, and we just, we just don't even care. But because we're here, we convince ourselves, and maybe some others, but primarily ourselves, that we're okay with God. We deceive ourselves into thinking that like, God doesn't really mind the fact that I'm, I don't know, a liar or a cheat or I'm lazy or I'm a glutton or I'm a sex addict. God doesn't, everybody is these days, it seems. God doesn't really care because I'm here. I'm doing my time on Sundays. You know, it's like weekends at the jail or something for a crime you committed. That's fake worship. True worship is surrender to the Lord. It's brokenness before the Lord. It's contrition before the Lord. And it flows from respect for God. Fake holiness. Look at verse 9. They're guilty of violence and fraud. So that's an anthropocentric sin. They're sinning against each other. Doing violence. Ripping each other off. But they think they're okay with God. That's fake holiness. Or we have uh, blasphemy. Um, you know, let me just talk about this a little bit. because it, it's, 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 it's kind of significant that we get this one right. We, we know the Ten Commandments. And we know the broader ethos of Scripture. You don't mess with God's name because his name represents his person and his character. So you don't use God's name in vain. The world uses God's name in vain all the time. How many times are you watching a Hollywood production and it's obviously deliberate because they write the scripts in advance. It's deliberate. And Jesus Christ's name is being used in vain. You never hear Muhammad's name being used in vain. You never hear Buddha's. I've never heard Buddha's name being used in vain. No one's trash talking Krishna. You notice that? It, like never, ever does that happen. But Jesus' name is sprinkled all through the movies. Jesus or Christ or God. 
and we hear it, and it's almost like we become numb to it, and then we grow up in a culture where everyone's running around OMGing this and OMGing that, tweeting it out, saying it, texting it, and we can just kind of, maybe even without being deliberate, fall into that and think that's normal. Folks, that's, that's not acceptable. Like, we don't say G as Christians, or G whiz, or gosh, or golly, or Jesus Christ, or oh my God, or OMG. We don't, we don't say that. Like, newsflash, we don't say those things. We don't say the short forms. We don't say the long forms unless we are saying them in worship or in an appropriate way. So if this is kind of like convicting for you, not meaning to finger wag, hoping to inform, make it a resolution to weed it out of your language in 2020. Because we, we don't want to reduce God at all. We want to hold him in high, high regard. We don't want to disrespect him. So blasphemy, that's out of place idolatrous association. Look at verse eight. It talks about them coming with foreign attire. It's like, oh, so I can't wear like non-Western clothing to church. (laughs) No, probably what's going on there is they had adopted maybe the uh, garb of Baal worship. I don't know what those uniforms would have looked like, but they would have adopted maybe the attire of Baal worship. It was specifically associated with Baal worship and they were using that garmentry and their worship of the true and living God. So, I mean, people aren't really doing that today, but the principle behind it all would be the principle of biblical separation. We don't take that which is dedicated toward evil and secularism and atheism and try to syncretize that with Christianity. When I was a kid, it was um, fairly common to receive teaching on what was called the different degrees of biblical separation. I don't even remember all the details of it, but Some of it was pretty extreme, but basically the way it worked is you would create a list of what your expectations were for other people if you were going to be in a a relationship with them. So if you were going to attend the same church, it was a very long list. You'd have to have the same doctrine, obviously, and a lot of the distinctives and lifestyle practices. And it got down into some pretty deep footnotes. Uh, You're going to laugh. I'm not kidding you at all. You couldn't drive a red car in the church I grew up in because I was a worldly color. Women couldn't cut their hair, couldn't wear makeup, you had to wear a white shirt to church, on and on. It was all this stuff, right? And that, if you violated any of those, you were out. So then you have another list for maybe Christian family members that don't go to your denomination. And then you have another list for people you'd do business with, and another list for neighbors, and on and on and on. Now, I think that was a little extreme in my view. Anybody here driving a red car? Okay, shame on you all, but you're loved and welcome here. We've had a few ourselves, or at least one. Um, a little extreme, but the pendulum seems to have swung too far the other way, where there's like no, you can do whatever you want. It's like radical freedom in Christ. It's just radical. It's not even in Christ. It could be opposed to Christ, but it's in Christ. And... Again, people run around using the same language that unbelievers do, drinking themselves silly on weekends like unbelievers do, smoking and token like unbelievers do, sleeping around like unbelievers do. And somehow we convince ourselves that that's normal. And it's not normal. It's very abnormal. So let's not take our cue from the culture 
But let's take our cue from the morality of scripture. If we don't, we, we drag God down. What we do, here's what we actually do. Remember the Bible says that we're created in God's image? We are. When we do these things, we create a God in our image. We like modify our view of God so he suits us. And this is sadly prevalent in the global church today. Where their view of God, it, it, it's, describe God for me. They start describing, say, that, that sounds a lot like you. Sounds like, like you with a fancy name. And instead, we need to allow the Bible to define our view of God. Better to blatantly sin and then admit it and find repentance than to just be oblivious to it or not to admit it or to ignore it. One of the tests you might take is like, think of someone that you know fairly well, that knows you fairly well, that's a pretty godly person. Someone who's godly and they know you. They know your strengths and weaknesses. And then ask yourself, okay, but if they weren't around and they were to receive like a video or a recording or some sort of me when I'm all by myself, like my thoughts are being recorded, the desires of my heart are being recorded, my actions and words are being recorded, would their private look into your life be the same as their public view of you? See, a lot of us live two lives. There's the two yous. There's the public you, and there's the private you. And they're often very different. God wants <laughs> there to be authenticity. One you. Someone once said many years ago, I don't know who coined this, but I think it's great. Integrity is the person you are when no one's looking. Period. You want to be a person of integrity and moral uprightness? It's the person you are when no one is looking, but we all are hyper self-protective and we tend to kind of put on our best, our Sunday best. And God is calling us to authenticity and making sure that our walks and talks line up, not just on Sundays, but all through the week. How serious is God about this? Look at verse 17. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. So one of the things, when we walk from truth, God walks from us, and we're left with no truth, and we become blind. This is why the world is blind to their sin. They're conscious of it, but they're blind to it at the same time. This is why when you sin once, you have this hyper-conscious reaction to it. And then when you sin the second time, it's like it's a little less, and the third, and the fourth. And after a while, it's just whatever. You just kind of do it. God is allowing you to languish in your sin and your blindness because you've forsaken him. And it, be, it can become a long road back. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like the dust. Now, by the way, those of you that are all into like the polite talk in church, you better plug your ears right now. Because the Bible is not always polite. It's not always refined. It's often very blunt and kind of crass, but it's like that for a reason. What is the next statement? God will pour us out like the dust and their flesh being poured out like dung. Think of dung being poured out. Okay, that's, that means poop. God will make you like poop that's coming out the back end. That's how God will deal with sin. And we're like, that's kind of gross. I wasn't really expecting that. It's in the Bible. There's a lot of crass passages in the Bible. Why? Because right now you're paying attention. It's crass. 
It's not polite. We'd rather think of other things. But God wants us to think about this to arrest our attention. This is what God will do on the day of the Lord to arrest our attention. Because God wants us to show him respect. Secondly, they're accusing God of apathy. This is a big deal. And again, it's because we have a tendency to think that um, people act or respond like we do. So we're like, <laughs> that was hilarious. And you're like, no, it wasn't. Oh, I thought you had the same sense of humor that I do. Or we might think, well, I'm offended by that. And the person's like, I'm not offended. Well, how can you not be? I am. Or I don't care about that, but I care about it. We tend to think people think and act the same way that we do, and we're surprised when they don't. And in this, the same is true of God. We think, well, well, I don't really care that much about that sin. So surely God isn't, isn't like rock his boat or I've moved on from it. So surely God has. God is different than us. He never relinquishes one iota of holiness. Verse 12 says, at the time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. So the imagery there is in the day of the Lord, God is going to come with a lamp And he's going to be searching all the deep, dark crevices for sin. But while he's doing that, it says, I will punish the men who are, what's the next word? Why don't you say it out loud for me? Complacent. How are they complacent? Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. People are like, God doesn't care. God's like, yeah, I care. I'm coming with a lamp. And I'm going to inspect every corner of the world. We can be guilty of making God in our own image. Where I've, I've done that sin a thousand times. My conscience is seared. I don't really care that much about it anymore. It's just part of my broken humanity. It's just who I am. Get over it. Accept me for who I am. We think, well, that's what God is like. Sometimes God does us a huge favor by busting us the first time when our conscience is still very tender, that's a huge blessing. I don't know if you know this about me, but how many of you all, just show of hands, how many of you know that I was once apprehended for shoplifting? Anybody? One at the back. Okay, so um, do you know when it happened? Last week. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I was 11 years old. I was hanging out with this kid in my neighborhood. 35 years ago, I was hanging out with this kid in my neighborhood. And we would go to convenience stores, and we lived next door to Kmart, so we'd go over there, and um, three or four times, I don't remember the number of times, he'd be like, hey, watch this, and he'd grab like a big chocolate bar and jam it in his pocket, my heart would be like, oh, I caught, you know, we're going to get busted, I was a church kid, and all that kind of stuff. And the fourth or fifth time, I'm like, I'd like to get in on this. So we were at Kmart, and it was around Easter time. And uh, they were selling those little mesh bags of foil-wrapped eggs. He's like, hey, man. And he grabs and sticks it in his pocket. And I'm like, ooh. And I'm looking around. I saw this guy watching us. And I thought, oh, he's like security. But then he turned and walked away. So I'm like, well, this is my first time. So I'm just going to kind of, I looked for a bag that was like ripped open. And I just took like one egg. You know, real bad dude, right? And... We went to leave the store, and this big dude stands in front of us. Come with me, boys. Back then, you, you could manhandle kids. So he like, grabs us, 
takes us to his office back in the uh, back of the store, and he sits us down. Well, I am just like terrified. I'm thinking like the world has come to an end. My parents are going to find out. My church is going to find out. And I just start like weeping uncontrolled. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. And my buddy's just like, So the security guy says, he looked at me and he said, don't you ever steal again. You can leave. You, sir, are staying. We're calling the police. And I hightailed it out of there. That was the last time. The foil egg incident. I'm so thankful I was caught the first time. I may be a kleptomaniac today. Right? Sometimes God doesn't deal with us that way. And it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again, and we're not caught, and we get away with it. And over time, we normalize it. This is what God is seeking, I believe, to convict us of today. Here's what it says in Psalm 121.4. Let's just remind ourselves of this. God doesn't sleep, and God doesn't slumber. God's never chilling out. He's never overlooking it. He's never missing it. He sees everything. And this is why God, as he speaks truth into the lives of the Judites, like, get your act together. The day of the Lord is coming. Fortunately, God used Zephaniah and his distant cousin Josiah to actually bring about a generation of reform among his people. Let's be like them. A generation that's different, that's committed to righteousness, that's committed to purity. In chapter 2, in chapter 2, God pronounces judgment against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, Assyria. With a sweep of his hand, he judges them all. He demonstrates his absolute power over the world. Do you know why? Because in ancient Near Eastern thought, gods were localized. There was a god in Judah. There was a God in Moab, there's a God in Ammon, there's a God down, and everybody kind of has their own territory. The God of the Bible never allows that one to go. He is the global God, the universal God. He has power over all nations. He speaks truth into the Judites, he speaks truth into the Israelites in the north, and he speaks truth into all the nations. They're all accountable ultimately to God. And then in that chapter as well, we have our way out in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says, what are we supposed to do? I'm guilty. If you're here today, you're like, I'm guilty. It's true. What do I do? I want to chart a new course. Here's what you need to do. Heed these words. Seek the Lord. Walk with him. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, all who do his just commands, seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And we know from the broader teachings of Scripture that we truly, if we, if we are humble and we've sought the Lord and found forgiveness, that we truly can be hidden under the wings of the one who can protect us from all harm, including eternal damnation. So obediently seek humility. You'll never regret it. You'll always be blessed by it. And God will be honored by it.